Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Middle Market Musings, a podcast dedicated to the people and ideas of the middle market. We're delighted that you've chosen to join us today. My name is Charlie Gifford of New Heritage Capital. And I'm Andy Greenberg of Greenberg Variations Capital. Today, we're speaking with Jim Anderson, managing partner and co-founder of Clearview Capital. Before we begin, we'd like to thank New Heritage Capital and Greenberg Variations Capital, along with our sponsor, SRS Aquium. When it comes to maximizing the efficiency of an M&A deal, no one does it better than SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals from the pitch book to the last dollar out. 50% of US private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize how their deals get done. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M.com. We hope you enjoy this episode. Jim Anderson, Managing Partner, Founder of Clearview Capital. Welcome to Middle Market Musings. Thank you, Andy. I'm happy to be here. All right. So we can begin before getting into the Jim Anderson story and the Clearview story. Uh, yesterday, there there was a painful football game. I'm from Philadelphia. You're a Jets fan. Charlie's from New England. They got a football team up there, too, I think. So how about that Jets-Eagles game? I'm going to let you begin by twisting the knife a little. Well, I would, as you know, I would never do that. Eagles are a great football team. The Jets played well yesterday. Even Zach Wilson played pretty well, which is a bit of a surprise, <laughs> but uh, in, enjoyed it. And my sons are all Jets fans. Uh, one is a Giants fan. I don't know how he went off the reservation, but a good time for us. I just so. want to. I just would like to go on record as saying, listening to a Jets fan and an Eagles fan talk to each other is just about the highlight of my day. This is really, really exciting. <laughs> is uh, is is uh, Bill Belichick? Is he going to finish this season, Charlie? I think we should move along. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> the answer is yes. The answer is yes. I'm not sure about the quarterback. That's my belief. But anyway. Uh, on the way to uh, becoming a Jets fan, Jim, grew up in New Jersey, attended college there. Give us the fast tour of young uh, Jim's life. Well, the fast tours, uh, I did go to high school in uh, Randolph, New Jersey. Uh, I then went on to study engineering uh, and, and actually got a degree in civil engineering uh, with a certificate in geological engineering because I've always had a this fascination with volcanoes and earthquakes. Uh, so uh, I enjoyed my time there very much. Uh, but I'd also had this kind of yearning to see the world. So I was able to combine those two things um, and took a job with Schlumberger International. Schlumberger is the world's largest oil field service company. And I took a job as a wireline engineer. And the interesting part, thing about the story is uh, when I was offered the job, I was told, okay, you have this job, international staff which means anywhere but North America. Uh, and you know, at some point in the next few months, we'll tell you where you're going. And I thought that was amazing. Like, I, it, it could send me anywhere. So I did a little bit of research. Uh, I read a book called The Schlumberger Adventure. And in it, they talked about, uh, there was a, an engineer who talked about the place where he was stationed. It's it a uh, remote location called Rashukir, Egypt, on the Gulf of Suez. He described it uh, as a place where it's not the end of the earth, but you can see it from here. 
and even the camels are male. This is a description of what I might be getting myself into. So several months later, uh, it was in July uh, after I graduated, I was given my assignment. And where do they send me? Rashukir, Egypt. So I spent three years, uh, not at the end of the earth, but pretty close to being able to sit. So this is Egypt. This is the eastern flank of Egypt on the, the Red Sea or thereabouts? Right. So we, I could look out our, the window of our oil base across uh, the Gulf of Suez at the Sinai Peninsula. Wow. And, and what was your job exactly? So I was a wireline engineer. Uh, a wireline engineer uh, is the person who comes in and runs an operation to determine what's down the well bore so you can figure out how to complete the well. So I had a team of four uh, Egyptian, what we call operators, that I would direct, and we would, uh, we would lower tools down into the well and then make measurements up versus depth. Uh, and then make an interpretation because it's not like in the movies where you see uh, they drill and the guys are jumping up and down because the oil's gushing out of the ground. They're doing that because they're terrified. You don't want that to happen. So you need to know versus every foot uh, of depth exactly what's in the formation. So, so that was really what my job was running an operation like that. Best job I ever had. You were all of 22, 23 years old, half a world away. Must have been quite an experience. I mean, did you think when you were doing it that you wanted to do it for the rest of your life? Well, so you have to recognize that this was 1984. Um, the internet hadn't been invented. Our oil base could connect with the outside world only by shortwave radio and then, honestly, only, by, only at night. So it was really a remote location. The world is a much smaller place today. Sure. So when I went there, um, it was, for me, it was, um, it was a toughening of experience. It was a lot like uh, boot camp. I mean, it, it, the, way, the way it's scheduled, I, I spent eight months on without a day off until I got um, my initial two-week vacation. And that was part, part training until you pass what's called a well site logging test. And during that eight months, I said to myself, I hate this. I want to go home, but I can't do that until I've gotten my first promotion to show that I can do this because there was no way I was going to give up and go home. But I, I said, I can go home once I've proven I can do it. But by the time I got to that point, I, 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 I gotten over that. I, I, I'd adjusted and I enjoyed it. The world was a different place from a, a connectivity standpoint back then. It was also a different world from a geopolitical unrest. And we're certainly seeing that today. Was there ever, any, ever a time that you felt, because uh, that's got to be somewhere near the Horn of Africa too, right? I mean, was there any issues with respect to safety? Well, I mean, it's not, not so different at all. I mean, there was lots of terrorism in the Middle East. In fact, I don't know if you ever saw the movie, The Uli Derrickson Story. It's the movie, It's, a, it's um, an account of the hijacking of a TV mm-hmm. flight in Cairo. She was, a, she was the uh, flight attendant, yes? Right. Actually, it was, I think it was hijacked on a, from Athens to Cairo, but that flight uh, was a flight that I took all the time. I didn't happen to be on it that day, but... Uh, but so, and then, and then, honestly, the first week I was uh, I was there, a slumber, a Dallas Lumberjay cementing ship um, hit a mine in the Gulf of Suez that had been placed just to screw things up. So it wasn't really all that different, quite honestly. But I, but you, when you're young, you don't you don't worry about those things. You don't think about that. You're invincible. You where do you where do you think the resilience that you discovered there uh, came from? Did it surprise you that you had it? I mean, could you trace it back to you know sports or some other experience you had as a, as a kid? What what did you draw on when you were there to say you know what I could go home but I'm going to stick? I don't know. I I don't like to fail. Although I've done plenty of that in my life, um, but that failure doesn't mean the end of anything. It means you, you get up and try again. I don't know. It's just 
just the way I'm built, I think. So a few years there, then home to business school? Well, so when I was there, um, it, it, it dawned on me that I, I was really good at what was in front of my face, at, at, at running the job, but there was this much bigger organization behind me. And I didn't, that I didn't, I didn't understand how any of it worked. And, and, I, and I, I did decide after three years that this was probably not what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. Although I have to say it was an incredible experience and what I would do again at that age. Um, but I wanted to move on, but I didn't really know how. So I decided to apply to business school, but I also took the LSAT and applied to law school. And I got into both law school and business school. And in the end, chose business school. And, and thank goodness, because I would not have made a very good lawyer. Uh, but I did um, end up going to Wharton. What was so interesting about that for me was my prior prior three years were really challenging. It was a job where you, you go out on the well site, you work, and because rig time is expensive, um, you could do a job for 24 hours. You just keep going. The last job I did for Slumberjay, I worked 36 straight hours. I slept for four. I got up, I worked another 24. And that's, that, that was just how it worked. And it was hard. It was just really hard. When you think about your time in East Africa, what is the one kind of, is there a seminal moment that you really look back on to say, I'm, it wasn't easy, but I'm really glad I did it? I, it was such an incredible experience. It just expanded me as a person because it was the hardest thing that I'd ever done. So it was the overcoming uh, all of the, the self-doubt and, and emotional distress, if you will, from being away from my family for the first time. Uh, but it just, just, it just shows you that you can. Uh, so now I never worry about whether I can do something. I know I can. It might not be easy, but I know I can. Jim, when you showed up at uh, Wharton, I mean, you referred to being part of this large organization and not having a sense of all of it and maybe wanting to do something else. I suspect you didn't have in mind, I'm going to get out of business school. I'm going to join the burgeoning private equity industry. I'm going to become a principal in a leading private equity uh, fund. What did you think was ahead of you? I had no idea. Yeah. What? Oh, you didn't. I had, I had no idea. I mean, I, I thought I thought something more business just made sense for me, but I didn't know. It was just a way to make a transition because I didn't think I wanted to be in engineering the rest of my life. So I needed to find a way to make a transition, and and Wharton helped me do that. It just gave me a, the basics, a basic understanding of business, basic accounting. Just it, it, in that sense, it was really helpful to launch me onto something different. So when you said you wanted to make a change, did you know that private equity was where you were heading when you went to Wharton? I had never heard of private equity. I had no idea. It wasn't even a, a, a glimmer in my mind. And then how, so after you, what year did you graduate from Wharton, Jim? Uh, 1989. Uh, and I actually went into consulting. Uh, again, it kind of like when you don't know what you want to do, you go into consulting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I spent six years at uh, Mars & Co., which is a DCG spinoff. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was actually very, really formative for, for what we do in private equity because Mars was one of the few PE firm, uh, sorry, uh, consulting firms that only consulted to one client per industry. So anytime you went to a new engagement, you, you couldn't lean on the operating partner, if you will, or any kind of uh, specialized knowledge. You really had to go build a fact base and from that determine what recommendations you were going to make. Well, well, that's what I do every day in private equity because the lower middle market is so diverse and there's so many companies with different business models that every time we walk in, we try not to bring the baggage of, well, you know, this is how we did it over there. We start from scratch every time. And that training uh, six years in consulting was terrific for, for that. Do you feel or 
over the course of your career, have other people made the observation that there, there's something metabolically different about the way you approach a deal compared to senior uh, principals of private equity groups who came up through the more conventional financial and accounting channels? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, there are lots of people who are ex-consultants and ex, ex-CEOs, et cetera, who are in private equity. Not everybody came through the, the financial uh, track. So I don't, I don't want to make it sound like I'm so incredibly unique. I don't think I am, but I, I never have thought about it like an investment banker because I never had that training. So it was Mars for six years and then it was Capital Partners? Yes, but it was, uh, there was an eight, eight months interregnum there because I quit my job at Mars because I was concerned about looking. I knew I wanted to leave there. I thought I might want to do something different than consulting, but I was working 70 hours a week. So I felt like I needed some space. So I, I went in and I quit and I gave I gave significant notice. Um, but I, I came home um, and told my wife, she knew I was going to do this. She said, I, that's wonderful. Oh, and by the way, I'm pregnant. So it was pretty interesting to quit your job and find out that you have your first kid on the way. Um, but it was good. And I, I spent a bunch of months going out to talk to people to ask them what they do, not asking for jobs, but tell me about your career. What do you do? How did you get here? And so it was a, it was a time of discovery for me because I didn't want to make a mistake and, and this is when I really began to think about private equity, uh, because quite honestly, you know, private equity was 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 a very small industry uh, back in the in, at that time, in the early 90s. Uh, it wasn't as well known as it is today. So I only became aware of it, honestly, well after business school. Was there a seminal discussion with somebody in private equity where you sat down with them, they described what they did, and you said, yeah, that sounds like it could be for me? Well, actually, there was a, there was a professor at uh, business school, Professor Hurst, who was the one who really suggested that I think about private equity, said, I think that we really fit you well. Um, and then think about private equity, it's consulting only you own something. And for me, that was a big thing that was missing in consulting was a total lack of responsibility for anything. It would do, we could make do a project. I, the last project I did, we made these recommendations, and the CEO said, that's great, this is amazing work, and we're never going to do it. And I'm like, what? He goes, oh, no, corporate will never let us do this. That, that was when I, I knew I had to get out of consulting. Yeah. But I liked the idea of breaking down businesses and thinking about how you make them better. But I wanted to own something. Yeah. And the, the, so the marriage there was, was pretty obvious once I was told to look at it. You had the entrepreneurial bug. You, you wanted to build something, but you wanted to own it. Tell us about the beginning of Clearview Capital. How did it come together and how did you get together with your now partners? So I, I was at a small shop called uh, Capital Partners, uh, which uh, was managed by Brian Fitzgerald, who was a Princeton guy. And that's how I actually uh, got introduced to him. I was just sending him a letter directly. Uh, and he asked, to he said, come see me. And he ended up hiring me. And I was, I was brought in there to uh, really to work on what was a difficult, challenged portfolio. And so I was just doing portfolio work when I came in just you know, go fix these companies. And so I spent some time doing that. And I learned a lot of great things about what's good and, what, and the right way to do things in, in private equity. But there were some things that Capital Partners did that I didn't agree with. So over that roughly three and a half year period, um, I formed my own idea about how I, if I were on my own, could would manage a private equity firm. And I was incredibly fortunate uh, a year into my time there that Cal Nider joined uh, capital partners. And so he's been my partner uh, and the best partner anybody could ever have, frankly. 
um, for the last 24 years. Um, so I met him and I, when we, we, we kind of got together and said, we don't want to stay here, uh, but we want to do something. And, and, you know, I was 37 years old. I think if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you better get going. <laughs> so, so we went out and, and when we started Clearview after lots of lunches at a little Chinese restaurant drawn on napkins, um, we recruited Pete Doolittle, uh, who uh, unfortunately has since passed away. But Pete was our original third partner. Uh, and he, he was also capital partners. Uh, and he focused entirely on deal sourcing. So we were one of those firms that had that um, focused deal deal sourcing model for a long, long time. You know, I, mean, I was thinking about that when you were talking about your, your consulting experience. Uh, consulting is a microscopic business. Uh, private equity, you do X number of deals a year and you bring a microscope to them. But to get to that point, you need the telescope of looking at hundreds of deals. How did you guys think about the funnel aspect of a private equity fund? You know, we think about it today exactly like we did then. Put as much as you can in the top of the funnel and be very selective and, and try to focus on those deals where you really have high conviction. Because I'd much rather do, you know, one or two great deals than three mediocre deals or, or honestly, uh, two great deals and one bad deal because you end up on a bad deal spending all your time on them. So we've always had that model. And what we've done over time at Clearview is expand our deal sourcing ever from a single person, Pete, to now five people who do nothing but search for deals. And that's just always been our model. Jim, your, your partner, uh, Cal Niders, is, is I remember it going back uh, 20 years. He'd come out of a banking background. He was like one of the first guys who I remember in private equity who would talk about capital structure and financing as part of bringing the deal together. Is, is, is that a fair recollection? And if so, how did you come to that early recognition that it kind of mattered how, how you uh, financed the deal? Well, I mean, I, I, lear I learned everything. What, what little I know about finance, I le I've learned from Cal over the years. Um, he was a terrific banker. He spent 18 years uh, as a banker. Uh, and But what was so interesting, I think, about our team when we started was we had three really different perspectives. Cal, who's really strong in financing, but but uh, trust me, really understands what works and doesn't work in a business. He's not just a banker. Uh, I came from much more from the what do we do with this business point of view. Um, and then Pete was a deal sourcer. So we were a really great complementary team from the beginning. And, and through our whole partnership, Cal and I have just, we never even really kind of sat down and said, okay, you're going to do this and I'm going to do that. It just naturally evolved into the things that he was best at, he led, and I backed him up. And the things I was better at, I led, and he backed me up. Jim, you um, have migrated up market from $250 million fund two to now $850 million fund four, fund five, excuse me. Are you still, do you still define yourself as a practitioner in the lower middle market, or have you graduated to the middle market? No, I would, we're still lower middle market players. I mean, we love to do eight and $10 million EBITDA deals. We'll, we'll do larger deals. We'll do 14, 15 million EBITDA. But, you know, the $4 million deal we did 20 years ago with inflation is six or seven anyway. So it's like, we're, we're still lower middle market people. One of the things on your website that really caught my eye was you talk about that you're not afraid and, and you often do run a concentrated portfolio. How is it, um, help me understand that math of in 14 to $15 million EBITDA businesses in the $850 million fund. If, and it's not, and, and well, it's not, that sounds not concentrated to me. Well, I mean, we, we, 
we, you still need to be somewhat diversified. When I say concentrated, what we mean more, more than anything else is we have, we have one fund. Like there are firms that have multiple strategies, have a healthcare fund, the technology, they do all these different things. We don't do that. We have just lower middle market buyouts where we've done in each of our three committed funds, we have done 11 deals. That's pretty concentrated actually. Yeah. Yep. And I, I, I suspect fund, fund five will be 11 to 13 deals. Over the past 20, 25 years, there's been this tidal movement in private equity, investment banking, also toward industry specialization. How have you guys thought about that over time and positioned yourself in relation to industry specialist firms? So, you know, let's take healthcare as an example. Um, our first ever deal that was uh, with the intermediary was uh, a little firm called Greenberg Ferry. Uh, was a company called Senior Care. It was our first. Charlie, did you, Charlie, did you get that? Did you did you you get that? That was. It's not a different not a different Greenberg. And that's the only reason why you uh, took Andy's call to um, to join us today. So <laughs> thank you, Andy, for uh, finally adding some value to the. Uh, a, yeah. We take healthcare as an example. We've done a number of healthcare deals, and our returns have been terrific in healthcare. And I think we know a lot about healthcare, but that doesn't mean that's all we do. We really think of ourselves as the kind of partner for a founder entrepreneur who wants to scale his or her business say, three or four times the size they are. And they really don't know how to do that they, because they're entrepreneurs. They started with something just as we did. You know, they started in a garage. We started above the garage. So we've seen how difficult it can be at each stage to build the infrastructure you need to scale. And these, these lower middle market businesses traditionally haven't really invested enough to be able to, to triple in size. So we don't think of ourselves as sector experts, but much more as business building experts. And we think that, that uh, those skills transfer regardless of the sector you're talking about. Now, having said that, have we developed expertise in healthcare and building products and in business services? Certainly we have, but we don't think that's the critical element. Talk, let's unpack that a little bit more because it certainly seems as though the middle market and the lower middle market is moving towards industry specialization, operating partners, two things that don't seem to be um, kind of the, your area of focus and allowed you all to be as successful as you have. Share with us a little bit more about the thought process behind that, Jim. The thing about um, partnering with entrepreneurs, um, it's our job to build a relationship with them so we can influence them. We don't want to be in a position where we dictate to them. That, that, that is not a good solution. And operating partners very, very often are used to being in positions because they were CEOs somewhere else where they make decisions. They don't often, in our, our view, and I recognize other people do it very successfully, but in our view, they don't make such great advisors. And so, so we provide that advice. We will sometimes go out and find independent directors to be on the board, but they're directors. They're not sitting in the office of the CEO next to them all day. We don't think, we think that's a little like oil and water with these smaller businesses. You're listening to Middle Market Musings brought to you by Greenberg Variations Capital and New Heritage Capital, along with our sponsor, SRS Aquium. Let's go back to senior care, uh, since I kind of stepped on your reference to that business. Jim Donnelly, Craig Maynard, the two then young managers of that business. What did you guys see in them and the relatively small business that they had that made you think that you could really scale it? Well, the first thing was, and Jim and Craig 100% proved this, we thought they were terrific operators. Um, 
even without we underestimated them. They were amazing partners. I'd like to take a lot of credit for how well senior care did. I can't really do that. We chose really, really well. They were amazing partners. But we felt like they knew very, very well how to operate uh, an adult daycare clinic, highly fragmented industry. And we just felt like these guys are the best operators out there. Let's just go buy whatever we can buy and let them operate it better. And that is exactly what they did. We, we acquired, we made 15 acquisitions of a total of 50 centers. And, we, you know, so there was no direct organic growth, no de novo centers. And, but every center, every single acquisition we made, they at least doubled the EBITDA of everyone. Can make some money. Terrific operators. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, uh, one of the, on a return basis, the best transaction we've ever done. The other uh, formative deal from uh, early Clearview experience that you've mentioned is comp compression polymers. What, what did you guys take out of that experience? Well, I need to rewind a little bit about how that came about. We were working, Cal and I, uh, in an office, uh, which was basically a small apartment above a garage in a residential neighborhood, you know, just scratching clawing. We had no money, um, trying to do things on a deal-by-deal -deal basis. We'd done one deal. Um, and we were uh, introduced to a company that made toilet partitions called Comtech. Uh, it's a longer story how we got there, but Comtech was a division of compression polymers. Uh, it was a, it had 24 million EBITDA, and you know I didn't have 24 dollars in my pocket basically. <laughs> um, but we uh, we said, what the heck? Let's go for it. And and we we made a proposal to the vet, the owners, which were 65 percent owned by the Crane family of Columbus, Ohio, and and the four brothers and a brother-in-law owned the other 35% operated the business. Uh, and we were able to get a deal done. We did bring in a partner, um, uh, J.H. Whitney, uh, because we, we couldn't raise all that money ourselves. But the interesting part of the story is we're on the phone with the CFO, who's now a dear friend, the CFO of Crane. And at one point he said to me, look, we really like your proposal. Um, there's only one thing that concerned, concerns me. I'm just afraid this deal might be a little too small for you guys. And I had to hit the mute on the phone because we, we never thought in our entire lives we would do a deal that, that was $155 million. We just didn't think it would ever happen. But we bought that company. It performed really well. And we were really, really involved. And in, in me as a consultant, it was great for me because I was up to my elbows in it without with a small portfolio and had a phenomenal time. And again, amazing partners. Jim Kiesling, the CEO, still a friend. Uh, just an incredible, incredible experience. And that company is now a multi-billion dollar public company called AZEC. And, you know, we feel like we had something to do with launching that business. It, it gave us the confidence to, to go out and do a lot more deals after that. It's not my impression that you've had too many misfires. I mean, in the run of uh, Clearview Capital, is there anything that you did that seemed like a big bet and it just didn't work out the way you thought? Uh, well, we, we are relatively conservative in a world of risk. Um, so, we don't may take too many big bets, <laughs> but I, I'd say um, the one that was the, the scariest one, uh, we, we were buying a company called American Furniture Manufacturing. Um, again, this was very early on, and we had racked up uh, what I think was about $800,000 of um, ex third-party expenses, uh, trying to diligence the deal. And uh, this was September of 2001, and then 9-11 happened. And we, we weren't sure that deal was ever going to close. And quite honestly, there was no way we could pay anybody back. We would have been bankrupt. Uh, but we were able to get the deal closed. Um, and that was really scary because that was a big bet for us. Uh, but since then, uh, we haven't taken a lot of big bets, but we've made thousands of mistakes, Andy. And, uh, you know, 
and hopefully we learn from them. We haven't made too many mistakes twice. Um, but, but over time, you, you, you fall down, you get back up, you learn from it, and hopefully you don't make the same mistake again. I'd be interested in your thoughts about what the culture at Clearview is like. I think a lot of firms follow the lead of the co-founders. And just would love to hear about how you think about culture, how you think about habits, how you think about partnership. And is it, a, is it something that you actively manage or is it something that you just let evolve based upon how you lead? Um, we are a very collaborative firm. So, for example, when we have investment committee meetings, the whole firm attends and we look for input from everybody because we know that more information is better than less. We, uh, you know, Cal and I have never been dictators. We've, we've listened to, to everybody before we, before we collectively make decisions. And we have an investment committee now of, of six people. Um, I don't think our investment committee has ever taken a formal vote. It's just not how we do things. We, we spend a lot of time to try to get to consensus. And if somebody in our team really vehemently thinks we're making a mistake, we're not going to do that deal. Just We, we, we just feel like it, it, there are a lot of firms that have dictators and that have been done very well. We've, we've never wanted to be that. We're trying to create a team-like atmosphere. And, and one of the things I think that suggests maybe that works is we have never, ever had a senior person uh, VP level or, or above leave the firm ever. You just anticipated my question. I assumed the answer to that is no, based upon the way you talk about it. That's a, that has to be a statistic uh, or a fact that you're awfully proud of. I, I am. And, look, and we've also been very thoughtful about succession planning. So we've elevated two, two others, Bill Case and Matt Blevins, who earned it to, to managing partner. And, you know, Cal stepped down from the management committee. And there's a plan for me to do that at some point in the future, because we also recognize that if you want to build a great firm that's lasting, really, for the long term, you need to show that path to other people. We've always, the other thing we've done, we've always um, promoted from within. So if you look at our investment committee, we did hire Paul Caliento, who we'd worked with for a long time, came in as a partner. But Matt Blevins started as an associate. Bill Case is an associate. Matt Romley is an associate. Jeff Fox is an associate. I mean, our partners, all, Nick, Nick Berry started as an associate. You know, our investment team, pretty much everybody is homegrown. And so we have our own peculiar way of doing things, but it, it works for us. Our culture is really very strong. It must be something that you're immensely proud of. And that homegrown talent is the direct opposite of the Boston Red Sox and how they bring up starting pitchers. But uh, that's for another conversation. <laughs> um the, so like, um, I, I like to think that among our associates, and I think this is true, we have future partners. And I, I'm, I'm convinced right. that that will happen. Um, Jim, how about the uh, – you, you mentioned that you are uh, – I don't want to put words in your mouth. I think you said just from a leverage standpoint, you're maybe a little bit more conservative um, or you worry about leverage a bit more now than you used to. In the market that we find ourselves in, immensely competitive, immensely efficient – if you are as conservative on the leverage side, are you over-equitizing to get stuff done? How are you gaining the confidence in closing deals if you're not relying on the debt markets? Occasionally, we, we'll, we'll over-leverage over things. We've, it's not uncommon for us to just be a little conservative and be a, a quarter or a half turn less, which means we do over-equitize a little bit. Uh, but I think our probably average lower leverage comes from the fact that we, we scour the earth for deals. And if you look at where we have sourced our deals, um, you guys might know, well, you probably would, Charlie, but um, and, and 
there's an awful lot of intermediaries, if you want to call them that, that we've done deals with recently who nobody's ever heard of. I was going to ask you about uh, the current state of the pie chart, the intermediaries that you see based on your business development effort. I mean, how, how much are you seeing from the high volume shop? How much from you know, smaller regional intermediaries? Where do you get your deals? Um, I would say our deal flow, uh, well less than 25% comes from uh, the shops whose names you know. Uh, great firms, and we appreciate the deal flow, and we take, we've taken a hard look at a lot of, a lot of um, deals from them. But we, we are, our kind of core market is what we call small and regional banks, and I use the word bank uh, pretty loosely. Very often it's a couple guys with a shingle. Um, but we also, there's a whole lot of other broker-like guys out there who um, don't have a lot of deal flow, but we want to put ourselves in a position that when they have one that's a good size, they're going to bring it to us. And, and, that, and it works for us because we have five people out there doing nothing but building relationships with everybody they can find. So we've been fortunate to, to get a lot of deal flow that are a little less competitive, but I'm not going to say to you that all our deals are proprietary. I don't think anybody can say that. Right. But we've, we've been able to to, to do deals where we feel like that we have the opportunity to sell ourselves on something other than just price. We're not stealing companies, but we're getting a good shot at companies at reasonable values. That's what we're trying to do. Right. And that's worked pretty well for us. I think there also, I think that there's a cleavage in the market where the deals being represented by the Lincolns, William Blair, Raymond James, they're a little bit larger and there's more of a premium on intense vertical specialization. The, the other issue is that they, most of the, their deal flow, uh, a lot of those firms is, is coming from the sale of private equity companies. Well, right. I mean, we would much rather be the first institutional capital. I think in about 95, 96% of our deals over time, we've been the first institutional capital in business. We would prefer to be in that situation because we think we can have immense value and being that guide and trying to show an entrepreneur how to build the infrastructure they need. I think we're very good at that. And it's not to say that we can't manage a company where somebody has already done some of that, um, but we have always focused on that first institutional capital piece of the market. And you're going to see more of that from these small broker intermediaries. Right. You mentioned, I think, on the website, Jim, that you're, uh, you describe your approach as control-oriented, not control investors. So there are some times that you'll uh, would you say minority or non-control with rights or how would you say, what, what do you mean by that? And, well, and, we, we and when do you, sorry, and when do you make that exception? So we haven't, we haven't done that. We haven't done a deal like that. We've pursued some when there's a seller who simply psychologically has to own 51% of a business. Then, then we'll consider those kinds of situations where we'll be a minority, but we would have to have control rights to be able to have to have uh, the ultimate vote for, you know, a whole list of things. But it's not, quite honestly, it's not really in our DNA. Um, and it's not because we micromanage. We really, really don't. But, but having the ultimate hammer, if you need it, is, is just kind of the way we're built. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, I, and I ask those questions, as um, Andy knows, and maybe a few of our listeners know as well, our approach is always first tranche of institutional capital, from the fragmented nature of the long tail of trusted advisors to the closely held, but doing so in a in a non-control classically defined position um, with lots of negative control rights, as well as the right to initiate a liquidity event, you know, after the fourth anniversary. 
Um, and it's just really fun to hear you talk about um, how you and your partners have, have grown the business and taken advantage of what is clearly a really uh, unique and well-received uh, approach in the middle market, despite how insanely competitive it continues to be. Well, it is competitive, <laughs> for sure. My, my uh, perception as a sell-side banker is that Clearview and New Heritage are fairly close to one another on a control continuum. And that, you know, as you both have said in this conversation, you and your partners genuinely hope and believe that you're making a bet in management where the, their instinct will carry the day. As we all know, that is different from the class of investors who are true control investors in the sense that when they write a check, it is to carry out their vision and their measure of success for management to the extent that management is continuing is how cooperative they yeah. are going along with their yeah. world. And that's that, why they call it a level you know, at all. You know, and I, I mean, as you know, as Charlie knows, I, you know, I, I have gotten away from far flung processes, focus on clients in a, in a more focused setting. Maybe, but and you, maybe this would be a good time to talk about the fact that I haven't seen many deals from you over the last two and a half years, but or maybe <laughs> pick that up later. The, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I just save it. I know what you're going to say. What am I going to say? You're going to say, I haven't got many at bats yet on selling any of your portfolio companies. No. Yeah, that's you. You were totally going to say that. What I, 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 I'm not going to say what I was going to say. I, I was actually, I'm going to return to the mature, substantive point. Well, that's that boring. I, that I was trying to make, which is, <laughs> is that I think that, you know, for the advisor in, uh, in, the, in these situations, a fundamental responsibility to the client is to help them understand exactly where each prospective buyer is on that continuum. And there's nothing wrong with the other guys. It is just a different kind of deal. It, it is a different kind of deal. And, and one of the reasons we don't like buying from PE, it's, it's not necessarily that we have to pay the highest price. We don't mind paying the high, highest price if the value is right for business. We have no problem with that. But we know that they're choosing us because of that. Right. And what we want is to know that we can build a relationship where the, uh, the, the, where we can combine what we know how to do with, with management's expertise and be something better together. That's what we're trying to do, which is why we always ask a seller, tell us every single objective you have, because if we can, if we can structure a transaction to meet all your objectives, we'll do that. A few years after Graham Frazier and I started uh, GF Data, um, a, a a friend of Charlie's and mine made the observation that I would not have been able to do that if I were part of one of the larger investment banks that consistently represented the private equity groups. This guy is a private equity principal. He made, he made the point. Those assignments are about beating the shit out of the buyers. And if, that, if, that's what, if that's what you did by day, you could not be a data aggregator that essentially required you to be like Switzerland by night. You know, yeah. that's, you know, it's just, it's just a different kind of deal. Uh, Jim, you're, I know you're a man of many parts. What are you, what are you thinking about outside of work these days? I mean, I, like I have five sons. Uh, my youngest will be 20 next week. Uh, my oldest is 27, and it's the greatest joy of my life to be able to follow them, help them, uh, be around them. It's uh, that's, that, that's it. That's what I do. I play golf badly. Um, I, I, I play. I, I think I play better when I'm playing with my boys. <laughs> uh, but really, it's uh, my wife and I. We, we've we've been blessed with five incredible kids, and 
you know, what, what more do I need? Any of the uh, boys follow their old man's footsteps to get into the principal investing uh, region? My oldest son uh, um, uh, went went and worked in an investment bank for, for two years, spent two years at a small PE shop, and now is at a pretty well-known PE shop uh, in New York. So, yes, that's one. And uh, I have my, my two youngest. They're both thinking about whether they want to try investment banking when they um, when they get graduate from college. But we'll see. I, I hope each of them follows their path uh, and, and only uses mine as a thought because they're, they're their own individuals. They all think about the world differently. And uh, I want them to have the opportunity to do what I did, which is like, go, go, go do whatever, guys. Jim, maybe this is a little bit far afield, but you you have five sons and I don't know anything about them other than what you've just told us. But uh, undoubtedly, you know, raised in a in a nice uh, household uh, of of some affluence growing up, but yet they're still committed to um, wanting to make it out on their own. You ever think about you know call values and 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 parenting? I firm believer that the most important job that anybody can have is be a mom or a dad. I'm sure you you and your wife kind of spent a lot of time thinking about that. No, we have, and I, I think you rob if you give your children too much and you don't expect uh, much of them. You rob them of what I think is the only way to really be happy in life is to earn success. It's, it's absolutely critical. I, I, I can remember times in my life when things were, were dark and difficult and okay, but you know, when you overcome them, there's no greater high. So I, I do think it's important for, for them. Like, and I, I can provide them um, a safety net that, that most people don't have. And that, that's a huge advantage, but I, I want them to strive to succeed so we've tried to instill that in them and, you know, time will tell, but I think they're really on a good path for that. That's great. Jim, as expected, you have been a gracious and insightful guest. Uh, congratulations on all the success and great to have you on Middle Market Musings. Thank you. Echoing Andy. Andy. Yeah, really enjoyed the time. Wishing you and your partners continued great success. Andy and Charlie, thank you. And uh, I will remain as I have been for some time, a fan of middle market musings. <laughs> I'll spread the word. Good. This we, need, we need all the help we can get. Appreciate you doing that. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Middle Market Musings. We'd like to extend our sincere thanks to Jim Anderson for joining us today, as well as our sponsor, SRS Aquium. Thanks as well to New Heritage Capital and Greenberg Variations Capital, as well as to our editor, Jason Zapolo. If you enjoyed today's podcast, we'd encourage you to like and follow Middle Market Musings on Spotify, Apple, or whichever provider you use to access podcasts. And of course, feel free to share with your friends. Thanks again, and look forward to catching you on the next one.